Ezra chapter 8. We'll be looking at the last half of the chapter, verses 24 through 36. Follow along your copy of God's Word now with me. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present, present have offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver, and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze, as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with them was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord, they also delivered the king's commission to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'll pray for our time now. <coughs> Lord, we do ask for your strength now. I ask for help to preach this morning. In our weaknesses, you're made strong. Please let your people hear your word and grow from it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, this morning we are concluding chapter 8. And I want to remind you briefly of the impetus for why we are going through Ezra and Nehemiah. Our study of any book of the Bible will always include plain exegesis of the text. We will do some study of theology, both biblical and systematic theologies, at some point in our study. The broader gospel narrative is going to be a part of our study, and we're looking for this especially in the Old Testament. 
We're going to have healthy doses of application. And we want to see, ultimately, how all of this points towards Christ and fulfillment in Christ. In addition to those necessary elements, our church is examining these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, for God's wisdom for how to build the kingdom of Christ in a post-Christian world. There are likely some here who would suggest that the New Testament might be a better source for that kind of information. I'll briefly remind you that all Scripture is breathed out by the same God and is, even today, still profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, <coughs> and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul told the Romans, and he also said something similar to the Corinthians, after quoting from the Old Testament himself, that whatever was written in former days was written for our, that is, New Testament Christians' instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I want to say something plainly this morning, beloved. I am a Christian principally because of the work of Christ, Christ on the cross and His victory over the grave. That victory won every battle over my sin and yours and triumphantly marched me into the promised land of the new covenant. I am not, nor have I ever been, a member of the old covenant, and I don't want to be. I have no desire to take you back to the old covenant or put you under the bondage of the law, as Paul warned the Galatians not to do. So the question might still come, why a focus on the Old Testament? Jeremy and I said when we planted this church, we were going to preach the Bible for what it is, the whole counsel of God. We weren't going to shy away from difficult passages, and we weren't going to pretend like the Old Testament was some kind of second-class inspiration. Jeremy, Daniel, and I will not, as some megachurch pastors in Atlanta have, teach you to unhitch your faith from the Old Testament. That's right. Let me be clear. The Old Testament, in many ways, applies differently to those of us in the New Covenant. No one is arguing that. Let me say this positively. Everyone in the realm of mere orthodoxy agrees that New Covenant believers live in the fulfillment of all of which the Old Covenant was just a shadow. My point being that our relationship to the first two-thirds of your Bible may apply differently to us in the New Covenant than it did to those who lived before Christ. But it still applies. I want to open the sermon this way this morning because I believe that one of the biggest threats to our unity at Christ the King, that blessed togetherness that we have experienced since we planted, is going to come at this decisive point. There are going to be those of you who are tempted by the slanderer or by your own sinful pride with the thought, why don't those brothers see the importance of the law? Can't they see how it obviously applies to X or Y today? The church should be leading the charge here. 
There are others of you who might be thinking, but the New Testament is when God turned the lights on and showed us what all that stuff in the Old Testament was really all about, what it was pointing to. Why are those brothers so obsessed with the Old Testament? Christ the King, beware lest Satan finally get that fish hook of enmity and bitterness in your mouth and you be the cause of dissension and strife. Everyone here in the New Covenant has entered a greater reality than our brethren who were under the Old. And everyone here has access to the whole counsel of God which is able to make us ready for the good work that God has for us here. Well, now let's get into the text for this morning. Last week, if you'll remember, the exiles were preparing for their long trek across the desert to the promised land. Ezra had secured the necessary Davidic heir, priests, Levites, and most importantly, the divine assistance from God for the people's safety. If you'll look with me at verses 24 and 25, he appoints 12 priests and 12 Levite assistants, if you take Sherebiah and Hashabiah, to be Levites, and I think that's the case. And these are to manage the transport of the gifts to Jerusalem. Now, Ezra is doing things here by the book. Numbers 3, verse 8, and verse 31 prescribe that the priests must care for the temple vessels and that the Levites must carry the temple goods. Notice here the mercy that God has shown to Sherebiah and Hashabiah. Both mentioned back in verse 18 and 19. Both, along with the other ten men in verse 24, didn't show up at the official call for help. Both had to be addressed by that group of 12 men from the scriptures that they were in sin for trying to avoid their Levitical duties. And here, not hardly a week has gone by. And Ezra is entrusting them with tremendous riches. What's that that people say about the God of the Old Testament being mean and cruel and nasty? He's nothing like the God of the New Testament. Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth. And certainly you can see that faithfulness to these two men and the other Levites who failed to show until they were confronted. God is God from before time began. He does not change. He has always been a God of mercy and He is still merciful today. In Romans 9, Paul is endeavoring to make the point that God's elect... That God elects those whom he wishes to eternal life. And that this is based on his own choice and mercy. In verse 16, the ESV reads, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now the ESV translates the word mercy here as a noun. In fact, in every English translation, it's translated as a noun. But the Greek word for mercy here is actually a verb. The text would be more accurately, albeit a bit clunky, translated 
So it depends not on him who wills, nor him who runs, but on the mercying God. Whatever you have been taught about the God of the Old Testament, hit delete on any thoughts of him being in a grumpy mood until Jesus shows up on the scene. Some of you here today have sinned greatly in your life. You've sinned to the point that you think you can no longer serve in God's kingdom. You estimate that your function in the kingdom of God might never exceed the performance of a very scratched CD from McKay's used books. My experience back in the day was that some of those CDs actually worked pretty good. I'm here to tell you something, though. You serve a merciful God. He has used murderers and prostitutes. He granted such to be the ancestors of His promised Messiah. He's used backtalkers and adulterers. He's rescued and used idolaters of every kind and of every depth of possible depravity. And do you think so highly of your sin that God can't put it so fully away in Christ not to be able to use you? The hand of our God is for good for all those who seek Him. That all there means all, including the whores and the prostitutes, including the sodomites, and yes, the pedophiles, the idolaters and the gluttons, the wrathful and the intemperate, the gossips and the scandal mongers. There are men in this church who would love to serve as elders and deacons, but they can't shake the slander of the enemy that they'll never be able to overcome the weight of all their past sins. As a result, it's pushing them further and further into complacency. Sir, if you are in Christ, I have one question for you. And Daniel prayed it this morning in his pastoral prayer. What sin? What sin? If you are in Christ, what sin prevents you from serving in the kingdom of God? You can get in that Prius attitude of yours and start driving from the west to the east. And you won't ever be able to show us where that sin is that you're talking about. You won't find it. Brothers and sisters, seek the Lord. He uses those who seek Him. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. Well, continuing with the text, speaking of those vessels, these men were put in charge of a lot of them. Ezra consigned to these Levites with their kinsmen all the silver and the gold and the utensils, weighing out each piece into their hands. Historically speaking, the way we count money today is pretty novel. Back when coinage was made of actual precious metals, one could just shave a bit off the edge of each coin and eventually you'd wind up with a large haul. That's actually why quarters and dimes have little ribs on the edges of them so you can tell if somebody's been shaving off to try and get more than their fair share. In order to make sure that they got the accurate amount, they weighed it out. They actually used scales to make sure that everything was accounted for. What's recorded here in verse 26 and 27 
is the total of all the contributions made by the king and his officers. The 650 talents of silver was a gargantuan amount, a total of about 24 and a half tons of silver. That's almost 50,000 pounds. Imagine transporting four school buses worth of silver across the desert. In addition, a large quantity of gold, silver utensils, gold bowls, and two shiny bronze things were counted out as well. All of this was to be used to adorn, honor, beautify, and glorify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, beloved, you and I have not been entrusted with these kinds of resources. And our adornment of the temple in the new covenant looks quite different anyway. Paul informs the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We've talked about this frequently over the past few months. But the temple of God is now the people of God. Not only are we the temple, we are also the priesthood of that temple. Last year, when we were in 1 Peter, we read, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What spiritual sacrifices? How do we beautify God's temple? With what should we adorn it? What has he entrusted to us with which to honor his house? I read now from Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 8, where Paul says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Jesus' victory over the principalities and powers came along with plunder, which he freely shared with his people for the sake of building up his church. With this, he gave us the church leadership, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. That's from Ephesians 4, verse 11. But the saints are also gifted for the purpose of building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When you became his child, Christian, when he adopted you into his family, he gave you gifts to beautify his temple. You are to do that work until the church is unified, until she is full of the knowledge of all that Christ is, into maturity, till she looks like her bridegroom. Boys today are often drawn exclusively to the external beauty of a young woman. While beauty is not nothing, 
I'm not interested in my daughters attracting those kinds of boys, the ones that are only interested in looks. Attracting the right guys has far more to do with my parenting than her prom dress. In order for me to be beaming as I walk her down the aisle one day, rejoicing with all my heart at the man that she is marrying, I have to ready her today to become wise and poignant, shrewd and industrious, nurturing and submissive, joyful and excellent in every way. Only then will she woo in those men that are worthy of the hand of such a young woman. And this is the purpose and function of our gifts in Christ. Our use of the gifts also, we're told in the Bible, will be successful. John, at the end of Revelation, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I spoke briefly about spiritual gifts earlier this year when we were in 1 Peter 4. That was back on May the 29th. By way of reminder, a spiritual gift is any manifestation of the Spirit in which He works through a, a human agent's grace gift, making it effectual by His power for the building up of the church. One of the disappointing things that I've noticed through my studies of historic Reformed theology is a dearth of information and application of a right use of the spiritual gifts. This coming from a perspective of solid theology. One line from A Mighty Fortress is Our God goes, the spirit and the gifts are ours. But I've yet to find a Puritan paperback on the beginner's guide to spiritual gifts. I actually did a quick search on Banner of Truth and Reformation Heritage books for the criteria spiritual gifts. And the only thing that I got back that was even close was a Thomas Watson gift book set. It's the best they had to offer. Rowdy Christians today want to call out legacy pastors for avoiding portions of the Bible that aren't as relevant, like the law, the church, and state relations. But they, that is those same rowdy Christians, tend to be just as eager to hush up any talk of the Holy Spirit working supernaturally through people to bless the church. And we know that He does, beloved. By the way, I'm not exclusively talking about the miraculous gifts, prophecy, tongues, miracles, healing, so on. I want you to know this. All of the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural gifts, every one of them. They are all empowered by one and the same Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Now I'll stop at this point and ask a very brief question. Are you using the gifts that God weighed out into your hand when you became a follower of Christ? Are you using them to beautify God's temple, the church? We'll come back to this in just a moment. But look down at verse 28. Now that the gold and the silver and vessels have been weighed and distributed, Ezra gives a charge to the assembly. He says, you are holy to the Lord. 
The vessels are holy. The silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Notice, he doesn't just say that the stuff is holy. He says that the people are holy too. This word holy means apartness, sacredness, separateness, something that is consecrated, something that is dedicated, or a hallowed thing. In order for these gifts to be used on God's house, they must be set apart as holy. And in order for these priests to be able to carry them without being consumed by the fire of God's wrath or cut off from the people, Leviticus 22, they as well had to be made holy. When the blood of the Son of God is in real time by the Spirit, beloved, applied to your dead heart, bringing it to life again, you are in that moment set apart as holy to the Lord. And this is why you can carry and use the gifts of the Spirit, each of which is also holy to the Lord. A brief side note, you don't lose your holiness if at every moment you aren't using your gift. I say this having just asked you if you are using your gift right now, knowing full well that many of you are in seasons where the Lord is teaching you what it means to be served rather than to serve. And that's okay. There are circles of Christianity that place such an emphasis on what you do with the harmful outcome that your faith is tied up in your actions rather than in the Savior who bought it. Don't mishear me. Your gift can weaken if you do not use it when God calls you to. Paul had to tell Timothy to fan his gift into flame. But you are not a slave to your gift. You are a slave of Christ, and you are declared by him to be holy, and you have been given the gift to steward it well. Use your gift when God asks you to. Don't neglect it, and don't bow down to it. Now in verse 29, Ezra's formal charge to the priests and Levites to get these treasures safely to Jerusalem commences. And this event, this moment, is so full of meaning. And Ezra knows it. Prophesying of the exile's liberation from Babylon, Isaiah says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. The people are not coming out of exile as slaves, but as priests. You might think of it like a kingdom of priests. And with the heir of the kingship coming with them. And that sounds like a royal priesthood. And they are all now declared by Ezra to be holy. Yes, a holy nation. Now we've heard that somewhere recently, haven't we? Beloved, I want to encourage you as you consider spiritual gifts. Please do not turn up your nose at any one of God's good gifts. Each of these is a stewardship from God. A God who is holy. A God who now calls us in Christ. He calls us holy. 
Each one of these gifts is a blessing to the church. Ezra's whole caravan has loaded up. They're ready to go. He is painstakingly weighing out to the priests and the Levites every ounce of silver and gold. Every vessel is accounted for and carefully handed off. And then look at the end of verse 27. All the way down to two small vessels of bronze or brass, depending on your translation. And in Bible times, bronze wasn't really that big of a deal. But what does the word say? Two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. So, Mr. Nobody Needs Another Gift of Exhortation, your gift is not worthless. And if God gave it to you and put you in this church, we need it. We need it. You do not have a discount gift. You do not have a clearance item gift. It might be weak. It might feel a little low T. You need to fan it into flame. But it is holy. Paul says, on the contrary, the parts of the body of Christ that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Beloved, your gift is full of blessing for this local church body. Our family went to the Anderson County Fair this last summer, and at the conclusion of the evening, there was a big raffle. They gave tickets away to each child, and the numbers were called, and to the credit of the morality of whomever was in charge of this event, prizes were awarded based on biological gender. Praise the Lord. For the duration of the evening, every participating eye was fixed on the stage, sizing up the gifts, dreaming for their number to get called at just the right time. And you can guess how it went with kids. Some watched in frustration and envy as another child took the prize that they wanted. Other children were called to the front, and not all were. But some children were called to the front, but they went forward in full sulk because they weren't going to be awarded what they had hoped for. And the Corinthian church, beloved, dealt with this exact same thing. The foot saying, well, I'm not a hand, so I'm not any good. Or I'm not an eye, so I can't serve in this body. Isn't it ridiculous to think about? One of the Levites shouting to Ezra, but I wanted to hold one of the gold ones. I don't want to carry the bronze one. Are you dealing with gift envy? God didn't give me X or Y gift and I'm bitter. Our sisters might be particularly prone to this. She's so hospitable. She knows so much about the Bible. Her prayers are so moving, etc., etc. Do you get envious when other people use their gift? Repent and ask God for insight into what and how you can use yours. Husbands, you ought to know your wife's spiritual gift. You ought to know what it is. And you ought to be helping her learn to use it. That's part of your job in training her up in every way into Christ. Which leads to, I know, the big question. 
Well, what is my gift? How do I find it out? I'll give you several things to consider as you pray about discerning what your spiritual gift might be. Number one, you must be a part of the local church. This is super basic and unavoidably foundational. People don't know what their gifts are today because they won't commit to a local church. And not just a Sunday morning gathering. Not the, the, the softy Christians. Some Sunday obligation fulfilled, thank you. Softy. Not that kind of Christian. <coughs> Look at the Levites in this passage. They've been given a task by God and now a gift to carry to Jerusalem. But in order for that to happen, they had to show up. They had to repent of their indifference to the family of faith and offer their bodies to God as living sacrifices. Christians in America today are largely the same. They want the gifts that come along with Christianity, but not the responsibility. They want the marital intimacy without the marital duty. They want the resurrection without the cross. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to know what your gift is, and more importantly, you want the Spirit to manifest it in you with power to bless others, you must commit to regular times of fellowship with the local church. Number two, the local church must call out the gifts in you. I believe this is probably the main reason why we don't know what our gifts are today. Is people are afraid to speak to other people about what they think, maybe, they might perceive, could be a gift. Not only are most Christians today not committing to the local church, but the local church isn't committed to serving them. Rather, it serves bloated ministries within that church. Notice what happened here. The Levites repented. God gave them gifts. But those came through the hands of God's people that were already together. Don't misunderstand me. It is the Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. 1 Corinthians 12.11 But aside from an inner compulsion to exercise a gift, the most profound means God uses in helping us identify our gifts is through the affirmation of people in your local church. Spiritual gift questionnaires would be much more useful if you ordered a bunch of them and then brought them to church and handed them out and had others fill them out about you rather than you filling your own out. Church, when you see someone carrying around the gold from God, which they are beautifying his temple, call it out. Tell them. Think again of speaking and serving gifts from 1 Peter 4.11. Did what they say bless you? Then tell them, even days after the fact. Did what they do for you bless you? Tell them in a way, in what way and how God is using it. And then, lastly, start trying to exercise a gift. There's not a lot of science to finding out what your gift is. I had no clue that I could teach until I'm ashamed to say... Someone at New Hopewell Baptist said, Chris, why don't you take the 5th and 6th graders? 
That was terrifying, honestly. I've never been so scared in my life. I had eight fifth and sixth graders in a room, and I was supposed to teach them the word of God. <coughs> and a few classes in, however, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Pastor Sam Storm says, Look for a need and meet it. Find a hurt and heal it. Be alert to the cry for help and answer it. Read the word of God and speak it. Identify someone's weaknesses and overcome it. Look for what God's, excuse me, look for what's missing and supply it. When you do, the power of the God energizing, enabling, grace-filled activity of the Holy Spirit will equip you, perhaps once, but possibly continue, that you can minister hope and encouragement to those in need. We have a long road ahead of us, beloved, for building the kingdom of God here in Anderson County. And each member of the body doing their part is vital to our success in this mission. Well, finally, the journey begins in verse 31 and all the way down to verse 36. This caravan is going to last about four months and cover about 900 miles. One interesting thing here you'll notice in these first few verses is the lack of detail about this long trip. They had all this stuff to carry. They had all these months and all these miles. And Ezra doesn't say much. He, he doesn't mention stops. Um, he doesn't mention where, places where they watered their camels. By God's mercy, there were no attacks. He mentions that and credits God. The word for ambushes in the ESV here is actually singular. So it should read, he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush on the way. I think that's meant to highlight the fact that there was no complication whatsoever. They didn't encounter any trouble at all. It's like Ezra saying, we didn't even face one ambush. Now there are moments like this recorded in our Bibles that are easy to pass over and not consider the powerful work of God for such a bunch as this. It really is miraculous that they made it all the, that way without any incident. Bible scholar Robert Jameson said, to accomplish a journey so long and so arduous in perfect safety is one of the most astonishing events recorded in history. Nothing but the vigilant care of a superintending providence could have brought them securely to their destination. But you can see that Ezra is actually driving the narrative towards something different. The main goal is what matters to him. Getting to Jerusalem and beginning the work of beautifying God's house. Well, upon their arrival, there's a brief three-day respite from travel. And they take that before they bring the treasures in and weigh them out to the priests who are on duty. And the whole was weighed out, and again, by the mercy of God, nothing is recorded as being missing. Before handing over the series of decrees from the king to secure their freedom and provision to worship Yahweh God, they worship Yahweh God. They offer him sacrifices in multiples of 12, with the exception of the 77 lambs, though some manuscripts actually do read 72, so it could also be... A multiple of 12. Interestingly, all that the people sacrificed to God was given as a burnt offering. 
The sin offering would have been partially burnt, but some would have been set aside as a priest's portion. The burnt offering was entirely consumed. It all went to God. And beloved, here's the point for us today. When we think about our spiritual gifts, the purpose of those gifts is to glorify God. Yes, that is plain and easy to understand, but how little do we consider it when we think of serving God with the gifts that He has given us. You want to know how to find your gift? Set God's glory as the chief end of your search. There's a lack of detail about the caravan, a brief explanation of the transfer of goods, even the almost afterthought of the decree of Artaxerxes for all the additional help down at the end in verse 36. Because it was always about the completion of this mission for the glory of God. That was the purpose. That was the goal. Beloved, this treasure that Jesus gave us in our spiritual gifts finds its telos, the purpose for which it was made, in bringing God glory. At the conclusion of the first half of Romans, also known as the Gospel of Paul, where the apostle has made an extensive explanation of the indicatives true of every redeemed and adopted saint of Christ, he heads his imperatives, his commands, with these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He is going to go on and tell this church how to use this new life in Christ, how to behave towards one another, towards the government, how to use your spiritual gifts and serve those with weak consciences. But all of that behavior, how they live as Christians, is the whole burnt offering to God. It's all for the glory of God, every bit of it. We reserve none of it for ourselves. Have you considered what you're giving back to God this Advent season? I want to know what my gift is. And I want to use it for your glory, Father. Might I recommend, in addition to your sacrifice of praise, in the midst of whatever trial you may be in, that your prayer for understanding and insight into your gift, that he would weigh it out into your hands, and that you would get to work using it for the purpose of bringing them glory. Ask, seek, knock. Give God no rest on this, beloved, until you more clearly see the good works that he has for you, the good deeds that he wants you to do to build his kingdom. This is how the mission of Jesus in Anderson County will be successful. When we are seeking God as our highest good, he blesses us with his supernatural power to bless and build the church. And we all grow up into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into mature manhood, into the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's the goal. It's all about Christ. It's all about his kingdom. It's all about God's glory. And he can give it to you. He can give it to you this Advent season. So you can turn around and give it back to him. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the help that you gave me. And I pray now that your word would be effectual in your people's lives, that they might be the men and women 
that you have called them to be in every way growing up into Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.